what's going on how's it going how is it going how's everybody doing today it is a wednesday hump motherfucking day oh man this whole month is gonna be a hump day this whole month and a half is gonna be or the end of this month and the next half of the next month is gonna be all hump day for me because i'm waiting on this vacation son um yeah, I'm trying to get out this bitch. I am worn out, boy. I am so ready to get out of here and go chillax. Uh, I'm going to go be on a cruise for five days in the Bahamas and then four days in Florida. So I am ready. I will definitely give you more details when that gets a lot closer. But anyways, uh, today we're going to do something. Every day is different, right? But today we're going to do, I should have done this on Valentine's, but this is going to be, the first segment's going to be a love segment, I guess. These are, uh, these are basically interesting love stories I found out there that, uh, like anything else, uh, interesting to me. Curious to see if it's interesting to you. Uh, so yeah, let's get it, son. Um, the worst one right here is about a lady called Linda Rise. Uh, she was a 22-year-old 20, dark-haired woman from the Bronx who was often described as a lookalike of Elizabeth Taylor. She fell for a successful older man named Burton Pugach. I think that's right. Uh, and was in a relationship with him for three years until she found out he was married and a father of a three-year-old child. Uh, she ended the relationship, but that did not go well with Pugach. He demanded that she marry him and warned her about the consequences if she didn't. He even stated that if he can't have her, then no one else can. In June 1959, when Pugak found out she was engaged to another man, he hired three assailants to attack her. The assailants threw lie on her face, which left her blind in one eye and nearly blind in the other eye. Uh, she was also permanently scarred. Pugach, Pugach was convinced. Uh, sorry, convinced, was convicted for the crime and spent 14 years in prison. But this did not deter him from relentlessly communicating and professing his love for her. When he was released, he proposed to her during an interview with the local TV station, and Linda agreed. To her, this was the best revenge she could get. They married in November 1974 and remained married until her death in 2013. So there's some true love for your ass. He burned her face, made her blind. She's still married to ass. Yeah, she looks a little rough. Um, next one. Let's see. This one's interesting. Um, Edith Cassis, a 22-year-old, 22 again, 22-year-old Argentine woman, agreed to marry the man who was convicted for her twin sister's murder. That's crazy. Uh, she believed her fiancé, Victor Singalani, wouldn't hurt a fly and that he was wrongly convicted. Singalani was in a relationship with the model, Joanna Cassis, the twin, but he claimed that the relationship was just casual and that he was actually in love with Edith. Okay. Uh, Joanna Cassis was found dead in July 2010 with two bullet wounds. While the exact circumstances of her death remain a mystery, Sigalani was convicted for the murder and was sentenced to imprisonment for 13 years. Edith and Victor married in a private registry office ceremony in Pico Trucado in southern Argentina on Valentine's Day 2013. Wow, love is in the air. Uh, during their earlier planned ceremony that was to be held in December, the twins' mother claimed that Edith was psychologically ill and stopped it. The family has since disowned her and claimed that both their daughters was dead to them. 
The father even stated that Joanna is with God and Edith is with the devil. Wow. This guy kills your twin sister and you marry him. Wow. Even if he's innocent, you still don't marry him. That's crazy. Um, what else we got? Let's see. This one is uh, Kareen Hoffman was a businesswoman who owned a clothing store in Switzerland. While she was on a trip to Kenya with her boyfriend, Marco, she spotted a tall Maasai warrior on a ferry in Mombasa. Wearing only a short red loincloth with his wiry muscular build and a oozing masculinity, she instantly found him irresistible. His name was Lakitinga. La poor motherfucker. <laughs> uh, let's see. Look at the kinga, la pora morejo. So I'm reading it Spanish-like, but it's African, so that's definitely not right. Let's just call him Latinga. And she decided that his tall stranger was the one for her. She soon ended her relationship with uh, Marco, went back to Switzerland to sell all her belongings, and in 1987, she returned to Kenya. Determined to find her one true love, Latinga and, and marry him. Okay. Uh, she eventually courted him, and they married. The two even had a daughter. But life was hard in the Maasai village. She had to adopt and learn to life as a Samburu, Samburu woman fetching food and water. Besides the ordeous chores, she also suffered from health issues and marital problems, of course. With diseases like malaria affecting her health and her husband's jealousy and paranoid nature damaging the relationship, she returned to Switzerland in 1990 with her daughter for good. She lasted three years. Uh, she eventually wrote a book on her experience called Deweisis Maasai. Oh, Deweis Maasai, the White Maasai, uh, which sold millions and was even made into a movie. Interesting. Well, at least she didn't get murdered. Thought she was going to be murdered. Let's see if this one's weird. Let's see. Bill Wyman, a former bassist in the Rolling Stones, was 47 years old when he first saw Mandy Smith on London. Lyceum Ballroom. He in immediately found her alluring. It was only 13 at the time. He described her his relationship with her as it was from the heart. He was 47. She was 13. Jeez. Sorry, guys. I'm like looking at the picture. If that's 13, this bitch looks 22. That's crazy. See, it wasn't lust, which people were seeing it as. The relationship became public when Smith was 16 years old, and it caused a lot of controversy. The two married when Smith was 18 years old, and Wyman was 52. The marriage lasted for three years before they finally got a divorce in 1991. What is even bizarre in this situation is that after the entire fiasco, Wyman's eldest son, Stephen Wyman, for, from his first wife, Diane Corey, was planning to marry an older woman. The woman happened to be Patsy Smith, Mandy Smith's mother. This makes Patsy both a daughter-in-law and ex-mother-in-law for Wyman and Mandy, his step-granddaughter. If this is not the messiest family in history, I don't know what it is. Oh, my God. This is hilarious. Wow. What a small world. What the hell is this? Carl Tanzler. A 56-year-old radiologist in Florida became obsessed with one of the tuberculosis patients admitted to his hospital. She was a young 22. Why is it everyone 22? She was a young 22-year-old Cuban-American called Maria Elana de Hoyas. Uh, Tanzler wanted to marry her once she recovered, but before she could respond to his feelings, she succumbed to the disease and died. I thought it was a dummy. I'm confused. 
Let's see. Came obsessed with one of the tuberculosis patients admitted to. Okay, she was young. I read all that. Oh, I guess. I guess I read that wrong. <laughs> Said patients. Okay, I'm an idiot. Sorry, guys. Uh, unable to let go of her and fearing she would decay if she was buried, he convinced her family to not bury her. No way. Instead, he built her a mausoleum and preserved her in formaldehyde. He visited her every day and would sit for hours to converse with her. Eventually, he removed her corpse and took it home. He bought preservatives and perfumes to keep her in good shape, but the body began deteriorating. He stuffed her body with rags to prevent her from collapsing and dressed her in a bridal gown and strung her bones together using piano wire. <laughs> Replaced her eyes with glass eyes and used wax and silk for her skin. Jeez, bro. This is crazy. This is like House of Wax. Um, Tanzler slept with the body for seven years before this situation was ever found out. Once it was discovered, he was arrested. But since the statute of limitations for the crime of grave robbery had expired, he was set free. She was later buried in secret in an unknown location to prevent further tampering. Wow, I am going to have to look into that. I need to see pictures, pictures and pictures. All right, let's see what else we got. This will be a little brief excerpt on Ted Bundy. Carol Boone, a twice-divorced mother, first met Ted Bundy in 1974 at work. Bundy was working for the Wisconsin, sorry, Washington State Department of Emergency Services in Olympia, Washington. During the day, he would help in the search of the women that had gone missing. By the night, he would kill them, committing the very crime that his department was trying to solve. Um, Carol, who also worked at the emergency management, found him rather charming and hit it off with him without knowing his secrets. Since the two were in separate relationships of their own, it didn't go further. In 1977, when Bundy was in prison in Utah for his heinous crimes involving kidnapping, rape, and murder, the two reconnected and exchanged letters in 1978. When Bundy was arrested for the kidnapping murder of a 12-year-old girl, Boone stood as a witness in his trial since the two wanted to marry but couldn't do to... Uh, due to their circumstances, they had to resort to crooked means. Bundy had found a legal loophole that would make their marriage possible. According to Florida law, a public declaration properly fra phrased in an open courtroom in the presence of a court official would make the marriage ceremony legal. Bundy proposed to her in court, and with the proper phrasing by the two of them, they were declared married. Though he was sentenced to death a third time for the 12-year-old's murder, Boone visited often. After two years of lockup, Boone gave birth to their daughter, and even though conjugal visits were not allowed in that prison. Wow. It's impressive. He managed to get her pregnant when he wasn't even allowed to have sex with her. It's pretty good. Not too bad. I see, now I'm getting into... Fucking Richard Ramirez and shit. See, uh, Dorian Leoy was a freelance magazine editor who came up upon a mugshot of Richard M M Ramirez while watching television. When she saw his picture, she was captivated by him, and the hint of vulnerability in his eyes drew her in. Richard M Ramirez, often dubbed as the Night Stalker, would enter homes, murder, and sexually abuse the victims. He would rob valuables and leave behind pentagrams, a symbol that was associated with the devil's worship. Lior reached out to Ramirez with a birthday card soon after his arrest, followed by letters, before they finally met a year later. 
After a third visit with the Night Stalker, Leoy decided that he was the man of her dreams. When Ramirez proposed, she accepted it, even though he was on death row. These ladies are crazy sometimes. Uh, she had written him 75 letters in the 11 years of his incarceration, which isn't that many. And throughout the relationship, she maintained that he was innocent. On October 3rd, 1996, the two married in California's San Quentin State Prison. In 2013, after being on death row for 23 years, Ramirez died of complications related to B-cell lymphoma. He was 53 years old. Huh. Interesting. All right, let's see. All right. No more serial killers. Let's get into some weird stuff. Um, 2009, a man from Tokyo married a video game character called Nini Anagasaki, who appears on a Nintendo DS game, Love Plus. Uh, Nini is a doe-eyed, witty, and beautiful woman. Her ravishing good looks and personality caught the 27-year-old's fancy, and he called her his dream woman. It's funny. The man who goes by the username Sal9000 said that she is better than a human girlfriend because she does not get mad at him for replying late to her. And even if she does, she forgives him quickly. He wanted to say that he does not feel the need to get a human girlfriend now that he has her. Wow. Uh, their relationship began when he started playing the game, which allows players to develop and nurture a deep relationship through the unique gameplay. Sal9000 started carrying his beloved around the streets of Tokyo. They went to a beach resort in Guam and also to Disneyland. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so when the man decided to marry the love of his life, he decided to broadcast the whole thing on the Japanese video sharing site called Nico Nico Duga. The human to, human to avatar union was viewed by thousands of people. Sao 9000 donned a white tux and married Anagasaki in front of his friends and other web users. Although the nuptials were not exactly legal, that is the best way the man could express his devotion to his lady love. What the fuck? Um, let's see. Six-year-old Peter the Dolphin was part of a NASA-funded research project that aimed at teaching Peter to speak through his blowhole. Margaret Ho, Howe, sorry, Margaret Howe was a research assistant who was working on trying to teach Peter to communicate with his humans. She was supposed to spend three months teaching him English words, but it did not go as planned. Since Peter was a maturing adolescent dolphin, he soon fell in love with Howe, Howe owing to her constant presence around him. This is playfulness and attention-seeking nature often disrupted his communication lessons. Once the experiment ended, Peter was shipped to another lab, and this caused his health to deteriorate. After a few weeks, he committed suicide. And the veterinarian ruled the cause of death as a broken heart. How does a dolphin commit suicide? That's an interesting question in itself. I'm going to have to look that up here in a minute. <laughs> How the fuck does a dolphin commit suicide? I've never heard of that. Is that a thing? Are they, I know some animals are suicidal. Um, are dolphins one of those? Yeah, right here. Peter the dolphin committed suicide. Let's see, Peter's suicide. Let's see, as the experiment ended abruptly, Peter was separated from Lovett in Miami and placed in a smaller and less lit tank. Reportedly, a dolphin was heartbroken from the separation and took his own life as it voluntarily stopped breathing and sank to the bottom of the tank. Oh, so he just, that's weird. 
because we just pass out when we stop breathing. Wouldn't they just do the same? Uh, the suicidal case of Peter unearthed an important point regarding captive animals, citing Slate Magazine Brian Palmer. The Science Times stated that determining the suicide by animal is difficult as it demands a collection of higher order cognitive capacities. On the other hand, behavioral neuro neuroscientist and dolphin expert Lori Marino said that dolphins have the cognitivity ability to plan and carry out a suicide. Well, I believe that because dolphins are supposed to be smarter than us, right? So I don't disbelieve that they have the knowledge to kill themselves. I just didn't know how. Uh, holding his breath. That seems pretty simple. I thought it would be something a little deeper. Um, yeah, whatever. That's that's sad and crazy at the same time. Learn something and I'm sad. So moving on. <laughs> um, Carl Emil Peterson, a Swedish sailor, began sailing at 17 in 1898. He wound up in the Bismarck Archie Archipelago of German New Jesus. In the Bismarck Mark Archipelago of German New Guinea. I've only heard of Papua New Guinea. I've never heard of German New Guinea. Let's see, uh, where he worked for the German trading house. Uh, the company, I'm not even going to say that name, headquartered in Kokopo. Uh, on Christmas in 1904, when Peterson was on his recruiting trip in the Pacific, his ve vessel sank off the Tabor Island in New Ireland province. He washed ashore near a village, and the native islanders soon surrounded him. The island was believed to be inhabited by cannibals. And, and at that time, cannibalism was not uncommon. Though he was considered strong, his survival was still bleak. But luckily for him, instead of being devoured, he was captured and, and taken to their king, Princess Sin Singdo. The daughter of the local king, Lami, soon fell in love with this outsider. Uh, the two married in 1907 and bore nine children. Damn. When the king passed away, Peterson took over the throne and ruled. He was called Strong Charlie among the locals for his famed physical strength. This is a story of the man whose life changed from a sailor to a king because of a princess. That's crazy. I couldn't imagine landing on an island and becoming fucking king of it. That's real crazy. <laughs> I got some other stories on here, but they're just so short. There's no point. The damn dolphin suicide just threw me for a loop. Uh, I was reading this stuff about Queen Elizabeth uh, the first that supposedly there's this uh, conspiracy theory out there that she was a man. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's talking about how I guess she uh, 10 years old. She was sent let's see, King Henry. Let's see. At age 10, Elizabeth was sent away to a village called Bisley to avoid an outbreak of the bubonic plague in London. Uh, they believe that if they sent her to the country, there would be less people, less death, more less likely for her to die. Um, says, unfortunately, as an unknown illness soon caught Elizabeth in its clutches, uh, she died. And then right after she died, the king, her father, said he was coming to visit his daughter. So the nurse panicked, says here. Uh, this is all theory. This is what a lot of... Uh, not, not so much conspiracy theorists believe, but this is what historians believe. A lot, a lot of historians believe this is what happened, or this is true, because the facts make it seem true, uh, which I'll read some of those in a second. Um, the nurse was panicking. She was scared that she would be killed, murdered for by the king for allowing his daughter to die. So the nurse came up with a bold plan. She figured she would go around the city where they were, the countryside, 
and find someone that uh find another female that looked like the queen or the princess and try to pass her off um unfortunately she didn't find anything so what she ended up doing was she found uh it says here she found a, a feminine uh how she described an effeminate young boy who looks somewhat like the dead royal uh, she dressed the boy in Elizabeth's clothing and added a wig and prayed the king wouldn't notice any difference. And I guess he didn't. Uh, the king did not notice the deception and the young boy would grow up to manhood and eventually rule the kingdom as a female. So these are a couple of reasons historians, not conspiracy theorists, actual smart people, historians. These are not idiots. Um, these are some of the reasons why they believe it's possible. Uh, it says the grown Elizabeth never consented to the marriage, despite legitimate offers. Maybe. Um, the perceived stark difference in the form and content of letters she wrote before and after her stay in Bisley. So before she went there, she wrote a certain way. And when she came back, she wrote a different way. So that's noticeable. Uh, she wore wigs on occasion while in public. That's weird. Um only carefully selected doctors could see her. Thus, she suffered from illnesses from long periods of time till one of her few trusted physicians attended her. So that's weird also. It's not all... Altogether, I, I, I get it. I believe it. But individually, you're just like, ah, circumstance. Um, and then it says here, a nobleman wrote in his letters that the queen will never bear children. It didn't say for why. So that's another thing. Uh, Elizabeth made a clear directive not to have an autopsy conducted after her death. Okay. A report from the cleric who discovered a coffin in Bisley in 1800s contained the skeleton of a young girl wearing clothes typical of the Renaissance upper classes. So somebody found a body of a royal. And I don't know. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Um, looks like Bram Stoker. The author of uh, Dracula, the creator of Dracula. Um, he's a supporter. Says it's unknown how Stoker first came across the story, but he would come to believe it firmly. He even devoted an entire chapter to the conspiracy in his nonfiction book entitled Famous Impostors. Um, Stoker believed that Elizabeth was, in fact, the son of one of Henry's whatever illegitimate male offsprings, making the imposter Henry. Henry VIII's grandson. Stoker believed this royal connection would explain the imposter's physical resemblance to Elizabeth, a member of the royal family. Interesting. So it could have been an illegitimate a bastard son that was just basically played his sister. It's extremely possible, I guess. Um, Let's see. This is, uh, I guess, this is an argument suggesting the story is false. Once Stoker published his book, the reaction was not kind. Few people believed his assertion of a cross-gender substitute ruling England during the 1500s. And later, internet historians Claire Ridgway would outline several reasons the story is fiction, including, number one, it is unlikely someone as intelligent as the king would not recognize the substitution of his daughter with a fake of a different gender. I don't know. Kings back then were pretty, didn't care. Let's see, according to the Queen's Landress, Elizabeth menstruated normally. Okay, that could be fake, but fair enough. Uh, the Queen occasionally wore dresses that clearly showed she had normal female breasts. Okay, a circuit so substantial would undoubtedly leak by at least one person who knew the truth. 
So they're thinking at least somebody would have told the truth. Uh, the real mystery is why a man as intelligent as Stoker put any faith into this conspiracy theory. Uh, it's now safe to assume that the Virgin Queen was exactly who she claimed to be. So apparently she was a a virgin... Virgin whatever. I mean, to each his own. I guess she didn't have to get married or have sex. So it's extremely possible. But... I don't know. It's 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 weird. I just thought it was interesting. Somebody was talking about it yesterday, but anything I find interesting, I throw it out y'all's way, you know. As what we do. How's it going everybody? I just want to talk to you today about uh, SwiftLifestyles.com. SwiftLifestyles.com is offering 15% off to all my customers, all my listeners, everybody out there. If you hear my voice, you're getting 15% off the entire website. Uh, Using promo code STEAL67, like you're stealing something, 67, that is the promo code to get yourself 15% off. Now, what that website is going to give you They have drinks that will help you react, focus, and energize. They have vitamins for your brain, good for boosting. They come in pill and gummy form. They also have gear, clothing, t-shirts, I mean, hoodies, whatever you need, you name it, they got it. Shakers, they'll hook you up for your protein shakes. They got three different sizes for that, so you don't always have to have a huge shake if you want something small, not too bad. Uh, the drinks are non-chalky and they have no weird flavor residue at the end, which is amazing. I've been using them for quite a while. Uh, I'm a very intense gamer. I like to stay up all night and I need something that's going to kind of get me there. Also, when I like to go to the gym, it's a good pre-workout. You get that uh, first little drink and you get the blue raspberry and you're golden. Uh, but anyways, we'll go ahead and let you try out that promo code STEEL67 at swiftlifestyles.com go ahead and get you that 15% off and we'll catch you later let's get back into it found some new ones that are pretty crazy um see Sorry to just download information onto y'all, but if it's in my brain, it's got to come out. Gotta. Um, let's see. Considered by many to be Portugal's first serial killer, Diogo Alves was born in Galicia in 1810. I love these old stories because you never hear this stuff. I mean, you hear the Nazis, current serial killers, the Ripper, you know, you hear all these things within the past couple hundred years and all the major stories, but to hear these offset like you had to be there type stories back from the 1800s or any time period is, is very interesting because you would never hear this any other way. Um, let's see. Let's see. Blah, blah, blah. In 1810 and traveled to Lisbon as a young boy to work as a servant in the affluent homes of the capital city. It wasn't long before young Alves realized that a life of crime was better for turning a profit. And in 1836, he had himself transferred to work in a home located in the Aqueduto das Aquas Livres. Say that twice. Uh, Despite the fact that those traveling across the aqueduct were humble farmers returning home, Alvis would lie in wait for them at nightfall when he would rob them for their earrings. Their their earrings? Their earnings. Sorry. (laughs) 
afterward, Alves would throw them over the edge of the 213-foot-tall structure, sending them falling to their deaths. Between 1836 and 1839, he repeated this process some 70 times. Jeez. Local police initially distributed the deaths to copycat suicides, which led to a temporary closure of the bridge. Alvarez then formed a group of bandits before they were caught while killing four people inside the home of a local doctor, and Alvarez was arrested and sentenced to death by hanging. But it was what happened next that makes this one of history's most interesting stories. Scientists at the time wanted to study Alvis's head to determine the origins of his murderous nature. For this reason, they had his head removed from his body, preserved in a jar for study, where it has remained ever since. Uh, the severed head now sits in the Univers University of Lisbon Faculty of Medicine, where students can experience the chilling reminder of a horrifying man. Wow. And the picture of him is crazy. His eyes are open. He, you can see he has a goatee. That's crazy. Smart, though. Uh, for the time, it's a very ingenious idea of robbing people. Grady Stiles Jr. Oh, Lobster Boy. So Grady Stiles Jr., who would become who had become known as Lobster Boy, was born in Pittsburgh in 1937 as the latest in a lineage of lobster men carnival sideshows who inherited the congenial deformity extrodactyli, which fuses their fingers together into lobster claws. That's crazy. Uh, Styles' case was pretty severe. In addition to his hands, he also experienced extra whatever in his feet and therefore could not walk. For most of his uh, his life, he primarily used a wheelchair, but also learned to use his upper body to pull himself across the floor with impressive strength. Limited by these deformities, Styles grew up confined within the carnival world, and so it wasn't surprising that as a young man, he fell in love with another carnival worker named Maria Teresa, Teresa, a young woman who had run away to join the circus as a teenager. The couple soon married. And had two children, but things took a turn for the worse when Styles started drinking and combined with his overpowering upper body strength, he became abusive towards his wife and children. Just because he has strength doesn't mean he has to be abusive. It's fucking retarded. Excuse my language. Remedial, sorry. Um, when Styles' teenage daughter, Donna, fell in love with a young man that he didn't approve of, he murdered his daughter's fiance in cold blood on the eve of the wedding at his trial he admitted his act with no remorse whatsoever but pointed out that he could possibly be in prison because no jail could properly accommodate his disability he was su subsequently let off without 15 years of probation allowed to return home he got 15 years of probation for a murder uh Though they had divorced during the trial for reasons that no one, either in the Styles family or outside of it, has been able to understand, his first wife agreed to remarry him in 1989. It's weird. When she returned, the beatings became more severe, and and few years after they remarried, she paid her 17-year-old neighbor, Chris Wyatt, 1500 to shoot and kill him, bringing one of history's most incredible stories to an end. Uh, not one of them denied that they had killed Styles. During the trial, his wife spoke to the length of his abusive history. My husband was going to kill my family, she told the court, and I believe that from the bottom of my heart. Wow, I wonder if she got away with it or what she got charged. That's crazy. I like these stories. Um, the woman who survived the Titanic and two other shipwrecks. What the fuck? She was a nurse, it looks like. Not too bad. 
depending on your perspective, Violet Jessup was either the luckiest or unluckiest woman to ever live. Either way, she certainly has one of the most interesting stories you'll ever read. Jessup was a stewardess on the ocean liners who began her career aboard the Orinoco in 1908 at age 21. She started with the White Star Line when she went aboard the HMS Olympic, one of the three Olympic classic cruisers created by the company in 1910. A year later, while Jessup was still working aboard the ship, it collided with the British warship, the Hawk, while the two were passing through a narrow strait. Though both vessels were damaged by the encounter, it did not completely destroy either ship, and there was no fatalities. So that was the first time. Um, while the Olympic was being repaired, Violet was employed aboard another White Star Line ship in the sister vessel to the Olympic, the RMS Titanic. Jessup was on board when the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank, but was able to find a lifeboat and survive. Despite these two sea accidents, she had been a part of a... Jessup was... Oh, Despite the two sea accidents she had been a part of, Jessup was under undeterred, and during World War I, she served as a Red Cross stewardess aboard the HMHS Britannic. Damn, girl. It had been converted into a hospital ship and was transporting injured soldiers to the United Kingdom when they hit a German mine in the Agen Sea and sank. While escaping the sinking ship on a lifeboat, Jessup and many other passengers were almost sucked into the ship's propeller blades, but narrowly escaped, cementing her reputation as Miss Unsinkable. <laughs> she would later recount her heroizing story in The Titanic Survivor and the, new, the newly discovered memories of Violet Jessup, who survived both the Titanic and the Britannic disaster. That is impressive. Congratulations. The Human Zoo Exhibit. What is this? Otabanga was a Mbuti pygmy tribesman born in the Uturi forest of the Congo in 1883. Why are these words so difficult? <laughs> He's a pygmy, basically. Which, if you don't know about pygmies, they're basically uh, smaller humans. They're, they're known to be very, like, not dwarfs, but basically in between that, in between a, a dwarf and, a, and a, what would be considered full size. They're basically a full-sized dwarf, if that makes sense. Like no, no improper links or you know, whatever, whatever the however you describe the difference, it, it it doesn't have it. Basically, there is a difference, but I'm not I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to delve into the differences. But it's basically just a shrunken version of a full-sized human compared to a dwarf or a little person. It's basically the best, the, the nicest way to explain it, I guess. Uh, Banga married young and fathered two children, but his dream of living a normal life was shattered when sometime in the 1890s, Belgian colonial troops came across his village and killed his entire family while he was out hunting. Without a family or tribe, Banga was lost and had no place in society. He had grown up in. Uh, surprisingly, at this point, some of Banga's most trying times were still ahead of him surprisingly after the death of his family banga was captured by slave traders and put to work on an industrial farm it was there in 1904 that banga was discovered by of all people an american businessman named samuel verner with racist beliefs about evolution well you ran into the wrong person buddy um he thought that banga with his short stature dark skin and sharp teeth filed as part of the cultural ritual was a missing link between humans and our evolutionary ancestors. He then purchased Banga for a bag of salt and a bolt of cloth. God, he bought him for a bag of salt? Jeez. 
uh, Verner, who owned this guy for him to buy? Uh, Verner's group promptly brought Banga to St. Louis, where he was the hit of 1904's World's Fair. Following the exhibition, Banga briefly returned to Africa, where he remarried but returned to the U.S. after his wife died from a snake bite. He was later placed in the ape enclosure at the Bronx Zoo, displayed as part of the New York Anthropological Society exhibit on human evolution. Local black clergy were appalled by the exhibit and demanded Banga's release. They successfully lobbied the governor to force the zoo to shut down the display. Wow, they really had a human display. And it didn't help that he was African. That's even worse. And why was he in the monkey exhibit? That's messed up. I said, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. I mean, he just looks like a normal tribesman. Uh, you can't tell stature from this picture. And his mouth's closed, so I can't even see his sharpened teeth. But yeah, it's still messed up. I mean, now, I mean, everything's so common because we know everything now. But I guess back then, something as simple as a little person is like a discovery. So I, I understand in the 1800s, but still wild, 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 wild stuff. Um, what else we got? Uh, the only Catholic priest ever executed in U.S. history. Oh. Hans Schmidt was an unusual child. He was born in the German town of Aschaffensburg. Aschaffensburg. <laughs> Aschaffensburg. I should be able to say that. In 1881, and had an eerie childhood habit of spending his afternoon watching the cows and pigs be processed through the local slaughterhouse. What a fucking weird childhood. He was also entranced by Roman Catholics rituals and played priest with a homemade altar. These child, two childhood p passions would eventually uh, converge in an unsettling way. A 25-year-old Schmidt was ordained in Germany in 1904, but by 1912 found himself at St. Boniface Church on the east side of Manhattan. But he wasn't the only recent addition to the St. Boniface at the time. A young Austrian, uh, sorry, I never said that all fucked up. A young Austrian woman named Anna Amuller had recently been hired to keep shop. Schmidt and Amuller then began having an affair. Of course, they did. I like that these stories are quick. Uh, on February 26th, 1913, Schmidt married Amuller in a secret ceremony that he performed himself. However, later that year, Amuller told Schmidt that she was pregnant and he knew that his days as a priest would be over if word got out that a purportedly celibate, purportedly? Purportedly, purportedly, I've never heard of that word, purportedly celibate Catholic priest had married and impregnated a woman. On September 2nd, Schmidt slashed Amuller's throat with a 12-inch butcher's knife in a Manhattan apartment that he rented for her. He then sawed off her head what? Let me start over. I didn't expect. I didn't see this coming. Schmidt slashed a Mueller's throat with a 12-inch butcher's knife in a Manhattan apartment. He bought her, but then he sawed off her head with a hacksaw and sliced her body in half, finally dumping her remains in the Hudson River. I mean, I guess abortion was too much. Jesus. Uh, when the body washed up days later, police traced the remains back to the Schmidt. Within minutes, he confessed to the marriage and murder of Amuller, claiming, I loved her. Sacrifices should be consummated in blood. What? 
The jury convicted Schmidt of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death by electric chair. Schmidt was electrocuted to death on February 18, 1916. To this day, and this is what truly makes this tale one of history's most interesting stories, Schmidt is the only priest to ever be executed in the United States. I mean, that is crazy. America's first supermodel who died in a mental asylum. That's a supermodel? She looks rough, guys. The cat looks better than her. <laughs> Sorry. A little rough. Um, it is also the 1800s, maybe? Um, to refer to Aubrey Munson simply as a supermodel would be dismissive, as the iconic Gilded Age star was renowned artist model, clothing model, and film actress whose fascinating tale stands out amongst as a crowded field of similarity, similarly interesting stories. She was, in fact, the model for some of the most iconic sculptures in New York City, including the massive 25-foot-tall statue perched atop Lower Manhattan Municipal Building Civic Frame. Born in Rochester, New York in 1891, Munson moved to New York City when she was still a teenager. She was first discovered when a photographer spotted the young beauty in a Fifth Avenue store window. This led to Munson's... Initial collaborative work with the photographer and sculptor who were drawn to her tall, photogenic frame and her features, neoclassical features. This fame also led her to being cast in silent films of the era. Despite her fame, Munson received little compensation, was not able to save up enough to support herself after her star had faded. By the 1920s, as her popularity decreased, she and her mother moved to upstate New York. With no savings to speak of, Munson took work as a waitress. It was during this time that she began to demonstrate signs of mental illness, such as a, such as her insistence on being known as Baroness Aubrey Mary Munson Munson. What? She blamed her downfall on Jewish people. And her outspoken anti-Semitism led her so far as to contract the U.S. House of Representatives, insisting that they create a law that would protect her from the Hebrews. Damn, this got dark. At the age of 40, Munson was sent even further upstate to Ogdensburg along, to Canadian, uh, along the Canadian border. There she would reside as a St. Lawrence State Hospital where she would live for many years. Towards the tail end of her life, the hospital threw Audrey out to make room for incoming patients and moved her to a nearby nursing home. Audrey Munson eventually ended up back in the rooms at St. Lawrence where she died at age 104. Her story inspired the biological book, The Curse of Beauty, The Scandalous and Tragic Life of Audrey Munson, America's First Supermodel. Huh. So it's more interesting that I guess she was America's first supermodel, not necessarily that she went to the mental asylum that's more just an extra let's see this is uh, perhaps the richest person who had ever lived he looks like some kind of sultan uh, Manza Musa the first has despite being at the center of one of history's most interesting stories largely been forgotten by history due to a lack of focus and study in Africa from which he came Let's see. Musa became emperor of Mali in 1312 when then emperor Abu Bakari II deputized Musa to temporarily assume his role through trading gold and salt, which were found in abundance in West Africa at the time. Musa amassed an enormous fortune. Though Musa had become fabulously wealthy through trade, the rest of the world only became aware of the extent of his wealth when he embarked on the pilgrimage to Mecca. 
His cavern traveled throughout Cairo, Medina, and finally to Mecca with a procession of more than 60,000 people, dozens of animals, and plenty of gold. In fact, as they traveled, Musa and his entourage gave gold away to people in the streets. They bought so many goods that they messed up the global economy for a while because he sizably increased the amount of gold in circulation. Musa used his gold to build a great number of mosques to the point that legend says he built one every Friday of his reign. The most famous of the mosques he commissioned is the Jingarabara <laughs> Mosque in Tibetan Mali. You just got to say it fast. When adjusted for inflation, Mesa's wealth is believed to have been around $400 billion. The only person who comes close to Mesa's wealth is John D. Rockefeller, who econ economists believe amassed a worth of around $336 billion when adjusted for inflation. So this is interesting because they're saying this is the richest man. Musa is the richest man in history. $400 billion is what they're estimating. But I hear all the time that there's sheiks and these fucking sultans in fucking Iraq and all these these oil guys, they're trillionaires. So, but the problem is these guys' money is not accountable. Like oil money, those those guys in the in the Middle East, their money is not written down on paper. But those guys supposedly are like as a family, they are trillion trillionaires upon trillions which a trillion is 1000 billion and a billion is 1000 million like think of a million dollars and then think of a thousand million of those fucking crazy now think of a thousand of those a thousand times that gives you a billion now think of a thousand of those a thousand times a times a thousand that gives you your fucking trillion crazy fucking crazy the difference between 1 million and 1 billion is the economy of an entire country like it's crazy the difference but i i, I believe this but i don't believe the 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 fact that he was the richest documented richest yes i i believe that but uh it's only because they can't they can't count some of these sultans that have money in fucking the middle east right now these guys have so much money it's oil money it's crazy um, let's see. Born in 1837, Olive, Olive Oatman was one of seven siblings all raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints before she found herself at the center of one of the most interesting stories of the American West. I didn't know the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints was that old from the 1800s. Yeah, I thought it was new. That Those specific words I thought that were new. I know Jesus has been around, obviously. Um Let's see. In 1850, when Oatman was just 13 years old, her parents joined a Mormon wagon train traveling to California. Midway through their journey, the Oatmans were attacked by members of the Western Yavapai tribe who slaughtered her parents and four of her siblings. Oatman was then taken captive by the, them and kept as a slave at their nearby village where she was forced to forage for food and carry firewood. It was often beaten, otherwise mistreated if she did not comply. After a year with the Yavapai she accompanied them to an uh, an intervillage trade where she was sold to the Mojave tribe for a horse. The Mojave were much more prosperous than the Yavapai, and luckily for Oatman, were also more compassionate. Well, she got lucky. Um, Oatman was given a plot of land to farm in traditional Mojave clothes to wear, and she was also tattooed on her chin and arms, a tribal custom reserved for members of the tribe. 
Then when Amin was 19 years old, a messenger arrived at the Mojave village from Fort Yuma saying that they had heard there was a white girl living with the Mojaves and demanded that she be returned. Fearing the white men would destroy them, the Mojaves brought Olive to Fort Yuma, where officers dressed her in Western clothing, deeming her Mojave, Mojave clothing, or yeah, deeming her Mojave clothing consisting of a skirt and nothing above the waist to be inappropriate. Uh, Oatman then reintegrated into American society after a few years, though she always looked back on her time with the Mojave fondly. She would later recount her experience in the book, The Captivity of the Oatman Girl Among the Apache and Mojave Indians. That sounds like a good book. I wouldn't mind reading it. Her chin tats are pretty sick, though. I wouldn't mind getting those. Let's see. The man who revolutionized medicine only to be ridiculed for it. Um, Ignaz, is that his name? Yeah. Ignaz Semmelweis was a doctor who made a huge medical breakthrough that remains important to this day. Although at the time he was shunned and ridiculed for his ideas, uh, while working in Vienna Maternity Clinic in 1847, Dr. Ignaz noticed a disturbing trend. New brother, new mothers. Sorry, I got the hiccups right now, guys. I'm just trying to breathe. Just trying to breathe. <sighs> Deep breaths. <sighs> All right. Sorry about that. So much reading. I'm not breathing. I get the fucking hiccups. Um. So where were we? Uh, let's see. Yeah, okay, so he noticed a disturbing trend. New mothers were dying in droves due to some serious ailment known as childhood fever. Uh, Ignace resolved to figure out what was behind these deaths and started by looking for their disparities between the hospital's two maternity wards and discovered that women treated in the doctor's ward were dying at a rate nearly five times that of those in the midwives' clinics. Uh, Ignaz released that the difference between the doctors and the midwives was that the doctors performed autopsies in addition to delivering the babies, and others went straight from one procedure to the next. Oh, I already know where this is going. You can't dissect a dead body and then go deliver a baby without washing your hands, bro. What the fuck? Uh, so this guy, he hypothesized that the doctors were spreading material from dead bodies to maternity ward patients and concluded that by stopping the root of the transmission, he could likely stop the spread of the fever. Well, duh. It's crazy what's so common now. You take the stupidest person in the world right now and that, what he is saying, what I'm reading about sanitary and gloves and things like that, common knowledge. But just a hundred years ago, the smartest person in the world hadn't a clue. So fucking crazy. So fucking crazy. Um... Let's see, pioneer disinfection me measures, mostly using the chemical chlorine. After implementing the simple policies that maternity wards needed to keep clean and that doctors need to wash their hands, the rate of childhood fever dropped dramatically. Despite proving that disinfection reduced mortality to below 1%, uh, Weiss' technique was rejected by most doctors for his time because they felt that it was insulting to require them to wash their hands. Wow, they thought it was insulting to ask a doctor that was digging inside a dead body to wash his hands before he digged inside a woman's body that was giving birth. Fucking crazy. Doctors sometimes, they are so, so high and mighty. Um, constant criticism and hounding from the medical community led Weiss to have a nervous breakdown and that placed him in a mental asylum where he eventually died in 1865, bringing his tale, one of the recent history's most interesting stories to an end. 
The irony of his death is that many historians believe he died of sepsis. The same thing that killed all the women at the maternity ward. Fucking crazy, bro. Craziness out there. So we got uh, one more here. The prostitute turned pirate queen. I think I've actually heard about this lady. Um, born in 1775, Ching Shi, Ching Ching Shi, sorry, grew up in the Guangdong province of southeastern China, where at one point she worked as a prostitute on a floating brothel. In 1801, the famed Zheng Yi, pirate commander of the Red Flag Fleet, raided the brothel and was so struck by Shi's beauty that he asked her to marry him. She said yes to Yi's proposal, but only after Yi agreed to give her equal partnership in the fleet leadership, as well as 50% of the admiral's share of anything attained. Just six years after marrying Shi, Yi fought his last fight amid the Tai Sun Rebellion in Vietnam, where he died in 1807. Seeing an opportunity to rise to the power, Xi then took command of the entire squadron. Shi's, that's spelled S-H-I-H, Shi, Xi's fleet went on to pillage the South China coast, taking on over sev several towns and taxing countless others. Also, under Xi's rule, the fleet would sink 63 Chinese government vessels, which prompted the British and Portuguese navies, <laughs> navies, <laughs> navies to stay out of her affairs. Uh, let's see. Three years after Xi assumed rule over the Red Flag Fleet, the King Emperor, seeing no way to curb the pirate's fleets, offered embassy to anyone willing to give up their pirating ways and return to the mainland. She returned. <laughs> that's crazy. She returned to civilian life, bringing with her the vast wealth she acquired from her piracy, as well as one of the most interesting stories in recorded history. She then went on to marry a former underling, Pao. Together, they returned to Guangdong province, where she opened and operated a gambling house until her death in 1844. That's crazy. What's your story going to be, right? How's your, uh, how's your tale going to be? How did it start? Born here? You did this? You did that? What did you do? What, what is going to be interesting that you did? I mean, think about it. I'm thinking about it right now. Well, what... I was born in this place. I lived throughout this place. I went to school at this other place. Like, what What did I do that anybody even wants to hear? I can tell you basic stories that are interesting to the basic person one-on-one. -on -one, but for the masses to be interested, for history books to be interested, what have you done? Tell me. What the fuck have you done in your life that anybody wants to hear? What have I done? Have I done a damn thing in this world? That anybody wants to hear beyond interesting conversation? Does, have I lived a life that is interesting enough for the history books? I, I think not. Like, think about it. Delve, delve into your life. Have you lived a life that's worth even telling? I mean, I'm trying. I feel like I'm trying to live that life now. I, I try to have all these woods in the fire. Have all, Stoke all these bricks at once. Have all these things going. Uh Try to have many baskets with many eggs. You know what I mean? Um, but is any of it even noteworthy? Is it going to be interesting beyond? I mean, here's the sad truth, guys. You're you're born alone. You die alone. Like, you come into the world alone. No one comes in with you. They're there when you get there. And people are there on your way out of this world. But you pass on your own. So you come alone. You leave alone. That's number one truth. I mean, you live, you die. It's number one truth. 
But that's not the only truth. There's a lot of other truths. There's a lot of things you could do before you die. But is it going to be noteworthy? Like, that that's the point. Like, everybody lives, everybody dies. But does everybody truly live? What the fuck have you done? Tell me. Send me an email. Tell me. What the fuck have you done? I know I haven't done shit. History books aren't going to remember me. They say if you haven't done something history worthy, noteworthy, your grandkids, you will not be remembered beyond your grandkids. And I'm sorry to be such a downer right at the end. It just kind of these hit me all at once. But you're when you die, that's it. There's there's nothing beyond it. That's the end of the end of the road. No matter how you look at it, just live your life, people. Just just live your fucking life. That's all I'm saying. Like, do something noteworthy. Don't let pass like time pass you by. I mean, I spent my twenties just it just flew by. Like, and I wouldn't even say I partied them away. I just wasted them. Like, like don't don't look back and and don't have good memories, you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying right now to make every year just full of memories, no matter what it is. Because you could die tomorrow, you never know. And like I said, uh, if you don't do some, like, think of your grandparents. Cool, you know them, maybe you know their names, alright? Think of your great-grandparents. Okay? You might know them, depending on your family, you might know their names. Okay, think of their parents. Having the clue, right? Unless you got a family tree. Think of their parents. Having the fucking famous clue. Couldn't even tell you where they lived. That's my point. Like, unless you're fame or infamy, there's no memory beyond grandkids. So, I'm just saying, live your life and be memorable. Like, and be good. I mean, what can you do? All right, y'all. That's it for me. I'm going to get out of here. Y'all have a good one. Have a happy Thursday, I guess, is going to be the next day, unless you're listening this uh, Wednesday morning. But, yeah, have a good day. Uh, Check me out on Twitch, Stealthy67. I will see y'all there. Have a good one. Be good.